Hello, cricket fans, and welcome to Cricket in 2024 on the Top Order Podcast. Look, it promises to be an exciting year of cricket, our favourite game. And here on the Top Order Podcast, we can't wait to bring you the greatest cricket news, views, and interviews from all around the world of cricket. First, we're going to turn our attention to the longest form of the game, that the five-day stuff. And we say that, of course, because it's a useful reminder uh, for all involved in the India-South Africa series that Test cricket can go for full five days, of course, India and South Africa doing their best at Newlands this week to free up some time and some room in the busy cricketing calendar by uh, by completing their test match in a little over a day and a half. And that's where uh, our man to our right and I are going to turn our attention for this week's missive in this week in cricket. Look, it's a game that I described to friends today and colleagues as a good old-fashioned nick-off uh, as India and South Africa conspire to lose 33 wickets in the space of a day and a half, as I said, in a game that many thought was a T20 hiding in plain sight. So lots to unpack about that test in Newlands, as well as the conditions, the pitch, uh, the talk, the crowd, the atmosphere, and a little bit of cricket as well on the field. Uh, and when then we look ahead to the Degeneration Tour of New Zealand coming up for the Proteas. Uh, so many, many comments uh, to go through. And as we do so, we bring in one of the great analysts here on the Top Order podcast. I refer to none other than the man who's always going through the gate, the doyen of New Zealand cricket domestic news, and a man who can grow a beard from zero to 60 in less than half an hour. Of course, it's the one and only, there's only one Stu Lipshaw. Stu, Merry Christmas, compliments of the, of the season, and Happy New Cricket to you. And let's start by asking... The question that's on everyone's mind at the moment, what went wrong in Newlands? Oh boy, what went wrong in Newlands? Uh, all I can think about, Bully, and same to you, evening, happy new year. It's, uh, it's great to be back talking cricket again and after yeah, a few weeks away from the mics for us. And, and uh, yeah, I sent a, a text to the team sort of saying, should we record tomorrow night because of this absolutely bonkers test match? And you replied kind of straight away saying, yes, we definitely should, with an exclamation mark, which kind of... Uh, you know, that exclamation mark has just carried on to uh, to your opener today. Fantastic, fantastic work there. But yeah, what a what a mad test match and series it was. I, I sort of hadn't um I hadn't clicked that uh the the test the whole test series only lasted five days and until we had a message on, on our Slack channel actually from from Avia, uh, a shout out to Avi actually, knew who's jumped on board to help us with some of our social media stuff. People are watching on on YouTube, will now notice uh, the the very stylish uh, thumbnails that are that are opening our, our clips now, and uh, yeah, all of that kind of stuff that's been lacking in our in uh, in the department for our for our team for a while now, and, and um, yeah, some very cool shorts and, and clips on on Instagram and stuff. So yeah, awesome to have him on board. But kind of back to my point, the two test series was over in in five days. Five days, you know, for, for two tests. This latest one was the shortest test of all time. We didn't even get to the end of the second day, as you said, which I, I know means we inevitably will have another pitch conversation. But I, I really found this such a fascinating and interesting series that that I would like to, before I kind of answer your question of, of what went wrong and, and kind of, you know, we might start to, when we look at the South Africa team to come to New Zealand, we'll inevitably have the, you know, what's happening to test cricket kind of conversations. But let's let's talk about some of the positives first. So I, I made a little list here and, and uh, of a few of my favourite things from the series and this test match in particular. And and maybe you can just pick up from, from there and, and we'll start our conversation. So first thing I have is that the South Africa crowds were just fantastic. It looked like they were having the, you know, the best time ever. Awesome atmosphere, Centurion, Cape Town, both tests just absolutely brilliant. Everyone getting happy. Like the cheers yesterday when Rabada was defending the ball when South Africa was was in huge trouble. Awesome. Ravi Shastri putting himself in the commentary hall of fame with his comments about leaving the room to uh, relieve himself. We will come back to that. Yeah. We will absolutely come back to that. That is first class all-time commentary from Ravi Shastri. That was, that was brilliant. South Africa winning that first test, I think, just you know made the series what it was. It, it sort of... It meant that we had this India side who, you know, I know that they they have had uh, they have come up short in various ICC tournaments, but they're a side that we expect them to win most series now when they play, even when they go away from home. And them losing kind of put the pressure on in the second match. And the home side of South Africa obviously wanted Dean Elgar to go out on a winning note, so it kind of added extra edge to the second test. 
we had hundreds from Elgar, Rahul, Markram, all like very different innings, but all really, really impressive in their own way. Two absolute master seamers at work in Boomer and Rabada. Siraj probably deserves a shout there as well for his six for, but you know, those two in particular, I just love watching when they're when they're going at their best. Nandre Berger, the emergence of him. I, I know we'd seen him a little bit in the one days, and obviously people in South Africa have seen a bit of him before, and, and he came with a few raps, and, and it was Kutsia that we kind of thought we might be talking about after the series because of the World Cup, but Berger was the one who stood out really for me, and, and I also just loved watching Virat Kohli batting in these conditions that I know we, means we will talk about these conditions, but yeah, maybe maybe it's time for me to stop now and, and Baldy and just let you go and Actually, heaps of options for you. So where do you want to start with something good? I, I think we should start. Let's start at the beginning of the series because this is sort of by default, uh, almost by accident, a series wrap-up of this India-South Africa test series. Uh, it's only a two-test series, and I, I think this is something that will become more and more of a theme as we get more and more commentary going into 2024 because uh, it is it is not a great advertisement for cricket that we don't now have a one-all series and a third test after this sort of seesawing affair. Both sides have really been humbled at various stages in this series by the opposition. Um, as you said, South Africa getting a, a, off to a great start in the series. Their uh, result in the first test, I think, was surprising for, for many punters, not just because South Africa won, but because of the way that they went about it and won by an innings and 32 runs. I mean, they really humbled India, particularly in that second innings, having bowled them out for only 130-odd, having made 408 on top of Dean Elgo's sort of 185 uh, in his penultimate test. So lots to talk about from that first test match. But I think South Africa got off to a fantastic start in this series and just goes to show when they put their best side or close to their best side on the field, particularly their first choice bowling attack. They are a real force to be reckoned with in world cricket. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, Elgar, why don't, yeah, why don't we start with him then? That 185 in the first test, I know a lot of people, the the fanfare about retirements has all been about Warner, right? And the in the worldwide media, at least for the, you know, the last, I don't know, six months, it's been a long time of, uh, of the David Warner retirement tour. But you know, we've got Dean Elgar, who's going out now after this after this series, and a really nice touch, I thought, actually, after he was dismissed uh, for the final time yesterday night here in New Zealand. Hugs from Coley, Boomer and Co. He's obviously held in, in pretty high regard. I mean, I, I think that you, you look at his uh, average, a fraction under 38, and, and, you know, when people see that, they're probably not going to remember him alongside, you know, kind of the all-time great openers. But he's eighth all time in, in runs for South Africa. He's, I mean, tough as nails. You're not going to find a, a tougher competitor than him. I know we talked a lot about him uh, and his captaincy style and stuff when he was when South Africa was here in New Zealand. Just the the contribution that he's made to South African cricket and um, you know the the innings that he went about in that like I, this test is obviously the second test is the one that people are going to talk about as for low scores. But it's you sort of forget then that. You know, India was humbled twice in that first game uh, with low scores as well. And, and Elgar scored 185, you know, kind of saw out all the, the early challenges and then just piled on, particularly him, that the, the partnership between him and Janssen was the one that I think just took the game away from India. And to get 185 in, in conditions like that, really, really special effort. And, and um, you know, I kind of, when I think about him, I sort of feel like, He's just Graham Smith. He's kind of Graham Smith. I know that's probably a lazy comparison with the left-handed, you no know, nuggety, you know, sometimes confrontational uh, left-handed South African opening batter. But I, it just feels like South Africa has kind of always had that that thorn in the side for like the last twenty years in, in Test cricket, and uh, you know, they, I think they're really going to miss him. You could go back even further than that. You go back past Graham Smith, and you go back to a guy like Gary Kirsten, or even going back to the early days of South Africa's reintroduction to test cricket and a guy like Kepler Blood Vessels. Uh, all of those guys are, are tremendous guys in that sort of gritty South African mould. And I wonder if South Africa are going to miss Dean Elgar as much as Australia are going to miss David Warner, but for the opposite reasons. Elgar, a guy who in this test series we've seen players unable to get in and grind out for long periods of time, uh, it, it, by and large throughout the series, the second test in particular, Elgar's the one guy in that South African 
batting lineup that you thought was going to be the hardest to shift wherever you played him around the world. So I think South Africa are going to miss tremendously a guy like Dean Elgar, who sets a platform for the more attacking players like Aidan Markram or, you know, Avander Dusan or, or whoever who comes in after him uh, to be able to attack a little bit more and go after the bowling as Travis Head and Mitchell Marsh do for Australia. So Dean Elgar, you know, 5,300 odd runs at an average of 38, as you say, a tremendous record for him, not one that will put him uh, in the limelight as far as uh, overall records are concerned, but one that was particularly important uh, for South Africa, who do play in some tough conditions sometimes, as we saw at Newlands. Yeah, totally. And and look, I mean, I guess if we're going back to, to that first test, really impressive uh, 100 from KL Rahul as well. Good balance, I think, for from him. He's had, a, he'd had an interesting series. Uh, you know, he's someone who... Uh, I know uh, he talked a little bit, I think, after that first test about sort of the online uh, abuse that he sometimes suffers. And, you know, I know we talk about him quite a bit in the the IPL, that he's he's not everyone's cup of tea in the way that he goes about things. And he often gets a lot of criticism. I thought he had a bit of, you know, he had a pretty up and down series. He had some really, not really nice moments, obviously, this 100, you know, dropped, dropped Markram yesterday. But, I, you know, at other times took some really nice catches behind the stumps. So, yeah, you know, he had an up and down uh, series, but excellent, excellent hundred, and and to go to take the team from I think it was about a hundred for five to to two hundred and sixty eight, and what seemed at that time quite a competitive score, batting first and things. So yeah, very, very, very good job from him. And then we go to to Aiden Markram in this test, who's you know kind of a swashbuckling hundred. Kind of everyone decided that this pitch was really, really challenging, which it obviously was, but he like found a way to play some of the classiest shots you're ever going to see in your life. So, yeah, some some very impressive batting performances among all the, you know, all the challenging totals or challenging uh, conditions that they had to face. Yeah, just on KL Rahul before we get to Aidan Markram in the second test, uh, KL Rahul got a big tick of approval uh, from Adam Gilchrist on the Fox Sports coverage of the Australia-Pakistan test this week as a, a guy with a bright future with the gloves for India in all three formats. And I think Gilly put it put it best when he said that, you know, KL Rahul's uh, technique as a wicketkeeper needs work, as Gilchrist's did when he first burst onto the scene uh, as a young player for Australia. But for KL Rahul and for India, he provides a tremendous option at number six for them uh, until we see sort of Rishabh Punt perhaps come back into the side. I think he balances their their test side beautifully. It allows them to play Jadeja, Ashwin, etc. at seven as a, as a bowling all-rounder. Um, and he just gives their side so much balance because you know that you can get hundreds from him batting in that number six wicketkeeper batter position as 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 India can from a guy like uh, Rishabh Punt. So for me, he's a, a tremendously important part of all three formats for India going forward. As you say, Stu, whether or not he's your cup of tea as a T20 player, he's one of the most most versatile players that India have at the moment. Um, and in a team full of full of match winners, he's absolutely the glue that can hold that team together. It's an interesting point you make about Rahul isn't it because actually uh yeah I hadn't really thought about that because often he's not the one favored to you know he's obviously been around the scene for a long time but he's not the one that takes the gloves in those situations they've been trying you know Ishan Kishan they've had a few other uh people in the mix when uh you know when Rishabh Pant hasn't been there so yeah it's it'll I mean look we don't know what's going to happen with Pant I, I you know I think everyone in the cricket world is hoping that he's he's going to come back strong and that he you know returns for this IPL and and if that's the case I mean it, it's Rishabh Pant's position to to really lose I think if he, if he comes back you know still the Rishabh Pant that we we have seen in the past but yeah I mean to to have a backup like Kyle Rahul in the mix and and to think that they weren't you know that they weren't even using him it was Kishan or you know other people in the mix it's uh, it goes to show that the depth you know that we continually talk about in Indian cricket. Oh, it's tremendous! It's a, it's absolutely tremendous. Uh, should we talk about just before we get on to Aidan Markram? Do you want to give uh, Nandre Berger a bit of a a bit of a love here, Stu? You mentioned him earlier on in the show. I had a good test in the first test, actually under the radar for me. I didn't realise that he had played in that first test, but yeah, three for in the first innings, uh, chipped in with uh, four for in the second innings. So seven wickets in the in the first test. Uh, he looks like a lively cricketer. Oh, absolutely lively. Yeah, the way he started in that first test, just I think he was straight past. 
straight past the bat. You know, he's got a bit of, I mean, everyone was kind of getting a bit of movement and an inconsistent bounce in, in those conditions. You know, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see him in, in other conditions. But, I mean, great start. Looks a, you know, I think we talked a bit in the World Cup about kind of the, the combative nature of someone like Gerald Kutsia. Nandre Berger doesn't mind a word either and doesn't mind getting fired up so you know he's he's a great competitor as well as we've seen and I think it's I mean it's just fascinating some of I mean watching them watching South Africans attack and watching Pakistan as well just how these sides just keep rattling off these fast bowlers I mean South Africa you know the, the real shame of this is we're not going to see any of them here in New Zealand I, I know what that we'll we'll get to that shortly but you think of that bowling attack that they fielded for that first test with uh, with uh, Rabada and Gidi, Berger and Kutsia, and, and uh, uh, we've still we're still missing his name is escaping me now because we haven't seen him for so long. Another rap, you know, the other rapid seamer, Onrik Nokia, Onrik Nokia that we haven't seen for ages. So you know, and they've they've got other seamers in the mix. You know, just to think that. They can they can put those guys and then you know someone's unavailable. Unfortunately, Kutsia's you know Kutsia misses that test or misses this test, injures himself. But just this this you know uh, factory line of, of players that they can they can bring in. But yeah, I, I loved what Berger did. The fact that he could shake the ball, moves it off the seam, bowls at real real pace. So yeah, I mean aw- awesome to watch. There were, I mean there was some quality quality seam bowling in this in both of these tests. Uh, you're absolutely right, and and we throw Marco Janssen into that mix as well, who scored that all-important 84 not out in conjunction with Dean Algar. He's a real bright uh, future guy for South African cricket as well. Uh, let's come on to the squad announcement for this New Zealand tour later on, as I'm calling it the D-Generation Tour, uh, but we'll, we'll get on to that in a little bit. Let's talk about the second test. Let's talk about the cricket that was played on the field, and then we'll get to the conditions afterwards. Um, there's going to be lots and lots of praise for the seam bowlers, as there should be some six-wicket haul, some big uh, game-changing moments from the South African bowling pair of Ngidi and Rabada as well to leave India six for none off 11 balls. But let's talk about the batting a little bit. Let's talk about the skills of Aidan Markram and, and the guys who differentiated themselves in that test match because I think there are two or three guys in the 22 that played out there that were playing a different game to everybody else. Yeah, Coley is actually the one I want to highlight the most, and I, that probably isn't that surprising. You know, he's obviously a pretty good player, but I just love, you know, conditions were so tough. They they really were. I, I don't know that they were 55 for none tough or 55 all out tough and, and six wickets for none tough uh, in, in the, at various times. I think... Uh, you know, we, we'll get on to to the pitch, but I think the inconsistent. I think sort of when you look at just the wickets, you'll look at them and go, "Oh, there was a lot of bad shots there." But I think it's more the 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 doubt that the non-wicket deliveries put in the minds of the batters make them play rash shots. But Coley just battling through that was was a really really you know as someone that you know has a brilliant technique and is prepared to dig in and, and seems to relish those moments. He was someone that I really enjoyed, and, and he sort of, you know, look, he hasn't scored, hasn't scored a hundred in this series, you know, but I think he scored one fifty, maybe if, I, if I'm correct. But he, he, the, you know, just the way them, him battling and battling hard and fighting, he was able to contribute in almost every innings that was out there, and and that was something that a lot of people really struggled to do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I actually had Rohit Sharma as the guy that I was watching uh, when I was seeing some of the highlights and the rare and the sort of limited footage that I saw of the game live. He really looked to me like he had his defence and his technique well under control, and he was making really, really sound decisions about which ball to attack. I think the conversation about this wicket that we're going to get onto is how much of this was a really, really poor cricket wicket, how much of this result was really, really good, accurate, uh, menacing, dangerous, fast bowling that asked a lot of questions of the batters, and how much of it was really poor decision-making from the from the batters themselves. And I feel like, as you said, Virat Kohli in particular, but also Rohit Sharma for India, 
differentiated themselves from the rest of the pack over the course of the test match because they were able to make really, really good decisions outside their off stump. They were able to play with really good technique, really tight technique. And when the ball did a little bit, they were playing with late soft hands. They were able to negotiate that swing and sieve movement. They were able to negotiate the variable bounce that was out there. And yeah, fair enough. Maybe they didn't get the the balls that you know, did unplayable things as Shubman Gill got in that second innings, that one that went along the ground to, to get him out. Markram got one in the first innings that took off off a length and hit him on the glove and he got caught in the gully. Those kinds of things didn't happen as often to to Virat and to Rohit, but I think that's a function of as much of their technique and their temperament as that they maybe not have got that that ball that that did something and had their name on it. I thought they were outstanding uh, for India. Yeah, I, I think yeah. When you're talking about Rohit, I I thought he was going to take the game away in that first uh, that first innings for India, uh, the way he came out and, and attacked and um, the you talk about unplayable balls. I think the one he got actually you know, was, was just about unplayable, yeah, it was. you know, it was, it, it was, was one tough. of those balls where you push for, you know, you sort of caught on the court, whether to go forward or back and just leapt up off a length and, and hit him and went to gully, I think as well. And yeah, very, you know, you, you can't do much about those. And, and but I think in, in trying to answer your question, as I said before, I think that it's, it was a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, that, that happened outside of the wicket taking dismissals that, uh, that sort of made the the way that some of the players were were batting. I mean, you look at uh, South Africa's second innings. There was a lot of really poor shots to for for the wickets. I think of Verena's one where he's just like pulling a ball and hit straight up in the air. They're fifth, you know they're fifty for five or whatever they were in that situation, and he's just hit one straight up in the air for for kind of no reason. But it, he's doing it because he thought like I, I, you know one's going to have my name on here, so I sort of have to when I get a ball that I think I can hit, I have to try and hit a boundary. So, you know, I can kind of understand that, but I think a lot of the credit in, you know, on the flip side does have to go to the seam bowling because, you know, when you think about someone like Boomer, someone like Rabada, you know, Siraj is, is getting, you know, into that mix now as well as someone who's very, very consistent. What they do, what they kind of realized on this pitch is we're going to run in and bowl balls that you can't leave. You know, you you talked about Coley and, and people being uh, really confident outside their off stump. These guys just didn't let you leave the ball. And what happened when they just banged on that length, Rabada and, you know, Rabada and Boomer, like I said, in particular, they're just such masters at hitting that length, hitting that length, hitting that length. And one's going to pop. One's going to, you know, one's going to uh, bounce more than you expect it, grab you on the gloves. I think so, uh, Rabada got, or... Janssen got four catches in the gully off the Indian players because of that exact thing that the Ngidi and Rabada were just running in, bowling perfect lengths, hitting that, hitting the, you know, the splice, the gloves. It was just, it was just fantastic work. So yeah, look, totally, you know, I mean, we may as well have the pitch conversation, right? I mean, you know, where, where do you want to start with that? Because it obviously wasn't, it, it wasn't good. It's not conditions that we, we want. Uh, for for Test cricket and and it and it went too far. No, it it did it did go too far. Let's address a couple of things. I think this was almost a George Clooney moment, aka a perfect storm. Because let's face it, the the wicket wasn't good. The wicket wasn't good in two dimensions. And I want to come on to why I think it wasn't good in two dimensions in a second. But you're absolutely right. We were treated to, or the crowd was for a day and a half treated to an absolutely masterful display of seam bowling by the two of the best exponents of accurate seam bowling that ask questions on a good length. The only guys I can think of that would have been as dangerous on that pitch, Josh Hazelwood from Australia and Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad from England. You throw those guys into the mix and you're looking at, you know, the perfect five or six bowlers of the current crop of international cricketers to play on a wicket like that because for Bumrah and for Rabada in particular – ably supported by Ngidi for South Africa and Siraj for India, you can't get a better you know, quartet of bowlers uh, to exploit those conditions. And for anyone who was watching that test match who you know, wants to be a fast bowler, those are the balls that you should be practicing bowling. Making batters, make decisions, asking them questions in that channel. Uh, and I think Australia, when we get to that Australia-Pakistan series and we look at how Australia bowled to 9-10-11 uh, when Pakistan were able to put partnerships together, that's the, that's the video that they should be looking at, right? Completely different set of wickets and circumstances, but, you know, 
Rabada and uh, Boomer in particular, they just ran in and bowled their best ball all the time, and they were asking tremendous questions of the batters. I think you're right, Stuart. The wicket was doing enough in two dimensions that it made the batters doubt their judgment and their and their normal technique on and around off stump because they were being asked so many questions. And yes, the dismissals were a function of the balls that didn't get them out as much as the ones that did. The thing that I spoke about when we looked at the wickets in the subcontinent and the conversation we had in the subcontinent pitches um, that we have criticized in the past, it's the same conversation here, but in the ball is just 40 Ks an hour quicker, right? If you're trying to combat excessive seam movement and variable bounce at the same time, it is nigh on impossible, as we've seen, to be able to do that successfully on a regular basis. You can say what you like about whether or not we think you know, those batters could have maybe applied a different set of judgment as Aidan Markram did. He decided that he was going to be circumspect unless he got a half volley and then he was going to throw the kitchen sink at it um, or he got whipped outside off stump and he threw the kitchen sink at that. That is a very opening specific set of set of skill sets to be able to combat that moving ball and I think for South Africa it's clear he did it better than anyone no one else got past 15 in the test he got 100 because he was able to wait for the ball that was right up in the slot and he's a good a cover driver as anyone in world cricket Um, so I think you know there is a function of that but you cannot combat excessive seam movement and variable bounce on day one of a test match. I think that's the thing that puts this wicket at Newlands in the poor to very poor category for me. It's This is not a day five wicket that we're talking about here. This was day one, prior to lunch, excessive seam movement and variable bounce. Very hard to combat that anywhere you are in the world, whether or not you're playing in India against exponents like Akshar and Ravi Jadeja and Ravi Chandran Ashwin, who are brilliant at those conditions, or you're talking about trying to combat Rabada and Bumrah and Siraj in, in South Africa. No one in world cricket can consistently combat those conditions. And as you say, it, I think, erred too far in the favour of ball favouring back. Oh, I mean, I, I actually can't say it much better than, than what you did. And, and- um, I, as you say, I think the variable bounce is probably for me the the one thing that's that's the most challenging because yeah, as you say, when 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 it's in both dimensions, it's just impossible to combat and and uh, you know that that's what makes it so tricky and makes the balance of bat versus ball so you know so skewed towards ball. I mean, three things I'd like to quickly pick up on the Markram hundred. We we kind of quickly bypassed it earlier. You're spot on. It, it was fantastic. I mean, yeah, you, you, you know, to 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 get a hundred in a runnable hundred in those conditions, and it wasn't like you can sort of sometimes you know get a quick forty or fifty by just going out and slogging, and uh, you know, in India, sort of. I mean, Jaiswell when when they went out to bat, he basically just swung at every single ball that that and got you know very lucky at, at different times, played a few great shots, eventually got out. Markram was it was it was sort of considered hitting, if you want to put it that way, and yeah, he at times was prepared to graft. It, it was it was really really impressive innings, and you know one that I hope sort of isn't forgotten in in the uh, you know in the summary of this test in in uh, in a year's time or, or something like that. I did want to pick up on something uh, that again I thought summarised things really well, summarised actually the whole test well, uh, and then one point about the the pitch. This is basically a, a straight quote from uh, a fantastic article, actually, by Mark Nicholas. Again, someone who's not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, on on Crick Info today, he released an article, uh, uh, sort of, you know, about what what makes a, a bad pitch. And, and he said, "Incredible things happened that everyone that had everyone talking. Fifty-five all out and six wickets without a run being scored, the most notable. And still, we could celebrate fine batting and the craft work and seam and swing bowling." Athletic catches were taken in the slips and the crowd rose to its feet on numerous occasions to raucously celebrate the many striking events they were fortunate to witness with their own eyes. Indeed, you had to put aside just two, if you had, had you put aside just two days to watch test cricket and these were them, you'd think that it was quite some show. After all, few modern batters boast techniques as good as Coley and KL Rahul or stroke players eye-catching as Rohit and Markram. Few modern fast bowlers come close to Kagiso Rabada and Jasper Bumrah. It's just that it all happened so quickly. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I, 
I actually don't think you can sum up this test. You know, we've we've touched on a bunch of those different people. I don't think you can kind of sum up this test much better than that. But back on the, you know, on onto the pitches. What I what I want you know to ask you because I know very little about pitches, right? I I I, I uh, pretended I did when I was playing. I went and you know patted the pitch and I. I touched it before the game. Someone told me you should always put your your finger down in the uh, the hole of the, where the wickets are and feel to because you can check if it's uh, if it's damp underneath the surface. Sometimes it's obviously hard on top, but underneath you can you can you can uh, do that. So I always would do that, but I couldn't tell you really what that meant. But but it was a fascinating conversation at lunch yesterday between uh, Sean Pollock and Vernon Philander kind of on the same topic and, and Pollock was really, really critical of these surfaces and actually critical of the, the pitch preparation more so and, and, and the ground staff really, because uh, he kind of talked about how a lot of surfaces South Af- around South Africa have lost the pace they used to have and, and sort of lost the unique factors that they used to have. He, you know, touched on all the different venues and how they used to, you know, one used to be really quick, one used to do this and one used to do that. But, Basically, he kind of described it as that they, they haven't been refreshed enough. They haven't been dug up enough. So now the ground staff are just constantly trying to patch together situations. So, you know, we saw in this test, we saw big cracks, but we saw kind of grass and different colored grass sort of around by those cracks. And, you know, I mean, papering over the cracks is that the, the uh, phrase that kind of comes to mind. And yeah, it just seemed like whatever they were doing, hasn't quite worked and and we need to think about a refresh in South Africa because that that's not going to work long term. The challenge I think that that this ground in particular and their ground staff have and as I understand it the curator for this ground is relatively new as a as a curator so I think he may have prepared one test wicket before this might be his second he, he hasn't been around very long. Uh, one of the articles that was also on Crick Info was around the financial backing that the cricket district or association that governs and and takes care of Newlands has had challenges with in the past and now. Uh, That curator, my understanding is per that Crick Info article, is that he's not just responsible for Newlands, but for a number of other grounds as well, including uh, first class grounds, schools, etc. So he's got a very, very big burden to carry in terms of getting ready a lot of cricket wickets, not just Newlands, but, but lots of grounds around that association. So financial pressure really being brought to bear and and we're seeing the result of a lack of finances being uh, dedicated to producing a a good cricket wicket. I want to get on to the Sydney wicket as well because we've seen some of the challenges with that uh, in this test match between Australia and and Pakistan in terms of um, how that wicket has been used in conjunction with Australian rules football. Uh, For those audiences not used to Australian uh, sporting codes in the wintertime, Australian rules football is a a kind of quasi- football game played with a, a an oblong ball on a round oval um, and it uses the middle of the cricket wicket as an area where you bounce the ball uh, famously to start the game and there is a dead patch in the middle of that um, of that pitch in Sydney where the center bounce takes place in the games that the team plays there the Sydney Swans so it can be very challenging what I'm saying here really is to prepare good cricket wickets if there are other forces at play here in Newlands it appears to be that there are some financial pressures and we know that South Africa has uh, financial pressures placed on its cricket and the outcome of that we're going to see in this degeneration tour of New Zealand uh, coming up in in uh, the later part of this New Zealand summer uh, because South Africa now are relying on a T20 tournament to fund the rest of their cricket uh, throughout the country. So it's no surprise to me really that we're starting to see some pressure coming to bear on on how money is spent on cricket in South Africa. And it looks like in this particular case, the financial um, squeeze, if you like, has resulted in there not being enough invested in either the ground being prepared or the staff to prepare it uh, with any experience to produce a good cricket wicket. I want to throw this at you, Stuart. If we had seen that uh, variable bounce or deterioration of a surface on day five of a test match, and we saw teams lose a flurry of wickets, having produced, you know, let's say it was for the sake of the argument, 350 plays 330 in the first innings, and it was 176 plays 130 all out, or 153 all out um, in the second innings, we wouldn't be having the same conversation. 
because we would say, oh, well, we expect the wicket to deteriorate and um, either see movement or spin or pace and bounce become a factor in day four, late day five. Unfortunately for this ground staff and for Newlands and for India and South Africa and all the fans that missed out on three and a half days of cricket, we saw that same deterioration happening day one. And that's the issue that I have with this pitch. Not so much that there was variable pace and bounce through the test match, but we weren't treated to three days of good, consistent pace and bounce. We got variable pace and bounce from day one. And I think that's really the issue for me. If we had seen that on day five, as you say, the cracks starting to appear, the pitch breaking up a little bit, as we saw in Perth in that Australia-Pakistan test, as we've seen throughout South Africa in the past, that wouldn't have been an issue for me. The issue for me is that it was deteriorating and on the beginning of day one, it looked like halfway through lunch on day five. Oh yeah, look, spot on. I, 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 100%, you know, that's the perfect test, isn't it? If we can have, I mean, for me anyway, if that, if we see, uh, you know, 350, three, you know, those kind of scores, you bat well, you can, you can pile on those scores early on in the test match and then it sort of gets tougher and tougher and, and we see the challenges because we just talked about how great it was to watch some of these players combat those challenges. I, I think, you know, test cricket, it's sort of talked about a lot. It's the test, right? It's it's the test of all your skills. And, you know, I think that's exactly what we what we all want to see. So, yeah, I don't think you'll get any disagreement from me about about what we what we want from a test wicket. And, and look, this just didn't deliver. As Mark Nicholas said, we saw some fantastic cricket. I, I really did love the series. But, you know, it just didn't last long enough. You're, you're absolutely right. And and let's not take anything away from the fast bowlers who really did a fantastic job of putting the ball in the right areas and asking some some very, very difficult questions. Um, I, I think we would have seen a really gripping second test. And unfortunate, again, that we're not going to see a third and deciding test in this series because it won all going into a third test, even with this result notwithstanding, uh, in terms of the, how quickly it finished, it would have been a great uh, conclusion to to that uh, test series between India and, and South Africa. So, look, lots to talk about. Look, uh, to be honest, summing it up really quickly, I agree. I think the wicket was poor. Um, it's equally poor to have a wicket like this as a wicket that takes excessive turns. So, for me, there's no... There's no discussion of double standards. This was a poor cricket wicket uh, for the reasons that we mentioned. And let's hope that uh, the groundsman in Newlands can uh, improve somehow the conditions there because it is a fantastic venue for test cricket as well. And as we as we said, Stu, as you quite rightly pointed out, great crowds getting along to support test cricket in South Africa uh, as hopefully they can continue to do in the future. Oh, totally. And and look, I guess to, to finish this uh, look at this this series I guess we probably want to look a little bit at where what's going to happen for these these next two sides and in particular South Africa because you know that they're coming here I know the uh, the scheduling you know why there's no third test is because you know South Africa's T20 series is about to start the SA T20 that's you know as many many people have talked about in the past is you know sounds like it's crucial to the, the success of South Af- the, that SAT20 is going to be crucial to the financial model and support that South Africa's test, you know, test cricket and, you know, cricket in general has to offer. So, you know, that's why that's finishing. But they are sending a side to New Zealand that has ruffled some feathers, to be fair. I, I, in some ways, I'm surprised at the reaction because they, they signaled this a long, long, long time ago that this was going to happen. But I guess when the names are on the paper and, you know, people are looking up and down the the squad list and going, who's that? I've never heard of that person before. And obviously these people are are people that have played uh, in first class cricket in South Africa. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of talent in this side still. But for for the global audience, it's been quite the reaction, Baldy. Look, it has been a a very, very strong reaction from a number of different circles. I mean, my uh, attention has been glued to this Australia-Pakistan series, as listeners and viewers may have guessed over the uh, last couple of weeks. And and my comments in in this pod really reflect the fact that that's been my primary focus over the Christmas New Year period. But a lot of the conversation, even in Australia, has been the strength or lack of strength, the lack of household names in the South African side to tour New Zealand. And I might have my tongue a little bit in cheek when I call it the degeneration tour, but there are established 
quasi established test cricketers in this side to go to New Zealand. But it's not the household names that we are used to see, seeing uh, being rolled out for South Africa. And I think the thing that's most disappointing for me is that we're not going to see that world-class bowling attack that we've just seen against India. We're not going to see any of those uh, in action against um, against New Zealand here in New Zealand. And to me, that's that's the real challenge. Um what what's been your take on the reactions? We'll get to the actual players in a second, but what's been your take on the reactions to some of the comments that have been that have been sort of bandied about in the media as a result of this squad being announced? I'm sort of in two minds, you know, because I I as I said, this this was telegraphed a long time ago. It wasn't wasn't surprising to me at all when I saw the squad list and went, okay, like we didn't expect to see any of their you know frontline players. It really because they're all playing in this T20 series and that's uh, that, you know, they're contracted by the South African board and the South African board runs the T20 series and they don't want to release their players for that. I think we've, we have seen uh, David Bettingham who made his debut in this series and, and I thought was actually, you know, showed some pretty positive signs, beautiful shots, 50 on debut, you know, did, did look like certainly he could, could hold his own in, in those conditions and, and at test level. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes over here in New Zealand, but you know, uh, we've been talking like you and I and and uh, Binksy and Raj. We've been talking about Test cricket being in trouble for a long time. Like this isn't a surprise. You know, Steve Waugh called this the defining moment in the death of Test cricket. I think his point probably is that you know it's the defining moment, maybe, and maybe it can be a positive in that like actually something people actually need to start thinking about. Like this is a serious moment. This it's if we want Test cricket to survive, we actually you know the whole cricket world has to actually think about how we can make that happen because the T Twenty leagues they're, they're taking over and and they're taking over you know Usman Khawaja he put it in in very plain terms like if I was you know if I was a player from another nation getting paid okay to play international cricket and I'm getting a truckload more to pay to play T Twenty cricket I'm sorry but I'm going to be playing the T Twenty cricket and and. You know, you can't you can't blame these guys for for doing that. You can't blame these boards for doing that. You can't blame like I, I think that it's something like we we want the ICC right to be a body that oversees cricket and decides what is important in the game. And look, if you're going to call it the World Test Championship, if you're going to call it the best level of Test cricket, we need we need windows or we need some we need something where. All of those players are available. I, I don't know how you create windows for every single T Twenty franchise league. It's it's a it's a difficult situation. I, I get all of that, and and I don't have the answers. If I did, you know, then I probably wouldn't be wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I'd I'd be uh, you know trying to I'd be in hopefully in that boardroom trying to do something about it. But yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's a challenge. But I guess the surprise is that you know the surprise is that people aren't, haven't been doing this sooner you know like why why have we not been having this conversation a year a year ago when you know every single franchise league around the world has been starting to to pick up at pace yeah look you're absolutely right Stu we highlighted this on the top order podcast two three years ago and we said that it was going to be a problem and and hopefully now if one good thing happens uh, from this South African squad being announced to go to New Zealand and it's not the squad for me it's not the players it's not the players' fault that they've been named or not to to play in the tournament uh, in South Africa or to go to New Zealand, and a, a lot of disrespect I think has been thrown at the players, which is not the intent here, right? For Neil Brand, who's going to set a record as one of the first uh, cricketers to debut and captain his side, uh, I think there was a New Zealander. Legion, didn't Lee Jim on uh, Captain New Zealand on debut in the in the 90s? Yeah, you, I believe you so, might know yeah. that better than me, but very, very few international cricketers have debuted as captain. Um he's he's going to be almost an afterthought in this test series. And I, I actually hope that South Africa give a good account of themselves in New Zealand. As a New Zealander or or living in New Zealand now for a long, long time, I should say. Um I hope that New Zealand, you know, win and win comfortably, um, as I think a lot of Black Caps fans would. But I actually think that that, you know, Zondo and Hamza and Keegan Peterson, Beddingham, Dwayne Olafia, guys that have been around the traps before and, and, and played some test cricket and played a, a reasonable standard of cricket a, a, for a long, long time, give a really good account of themselves on this tour. And hopefully 
South Africa unearth a a player for the future. You know, one of these younger guys potentially, Van Tonda as a, as a batter, or um, maybe even I think they've got a young um, fast bowler, Ruin de Sfort, who's in the squad, who's only twenty five. Let's hope that they unearth someone for the future there, as we kind of always do when West Indies bring a squad that's missing some of their household names on tour. Um, to another country. To me, the issue is the parlous state of cricket financial security in in nations other than Australia, India, and England. Because if you ask Australian Australians, Englanders, or the English and Indians, they will say that there's nothing wrong with Test cricket. There's heaps of Test cricket being played. We get great crowds. Everyone comes to see it when we when we have home tests. We contest the old World Test Championship final. We may win. We may lose. There's nothing wrong with Test cricket. However, for everybody else, there is a parlous state of the finances or the incentive to play Test cricket in those countries compared to the riches that are on offer in the IPL. There is no established um, or there is is less established cachet involved in world cups than there is in other sports like football there's less or rugby there's less cachet involved in the olympics we're going to see cricket in the olympics in 2028 for the first time but the olympics is not a carrot for players to play test cricket it's a carrot for players to play t20 cricket so there there needed to be three years ago a conversation about how we preserve windows and financial benefits for players playing test cricket. It didn't happen. And now we are seeing national bodies like South Africa and other nations will not be looking at this and saying this is not the answer. Sri Lanka might be looking at this and going, well, the future of Sri Lanka cricket is investing all of our money and making our players play in their domestic league. The only way that South African cricket, as I understand it, can be viable is for all of their players to play in this tournament and for it to be a success. If it is not, then there is a very, very dire potential outcome for South Africa, which is why all of these players are being asked to play in this local tournament. And it's why we're seeing a test side being sent to New Zealand with a captain that's never played test cricket before, uh, unfortunately, for Neil Brand. So it's a real problem for test cricket. It has to be a a wake-up call. It has to be a point of intervention for Test Cricket to say, actually, we have been asleep at the wheel here as a governing body and as a collection of nations that are not inheriting cricket from the people have gone before. We are borrowing cricket, to borrow a phrase that's used here in New Zealand beautifully, I might add. We are borrowing cricket from our kids and our grandkids. We are borrowing the game from them. And we owe it to them to to plant the seeds of future sustainable success of cricket in its traditional form. I'm not suggesting that test cricket should be played at the expense of making money. Cricket needs to make money. It needs to have the IPL just as English football needs to have the Premier League and the Champions League and you know investment coming from all over the globe. Sport needs that injection of capital. To be, to be relevant um, and to fund grassroots sport. But it can't do so at the expense of Test cricket being an afterthought um, for major nations like South Africa, or any nation to, for that matter, to be able to send a decent side on a tour of another country. We don't always have to send our best possible 11. Scheduling's not going to allow that, let's be real. But until we fix the scheduling of Test cricket and the incentives for players to play Test cricket, this sort of squad announcement is going to continue, and it is going to be a. It's it's it, hopefully it's not the death knell of of Test cricket. I I don't want to say that it is, but it 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 is. It looks really really bad. I, I can't I can't say much better than that. Here here. I mean you know we we've said it many times. We really we really need someone at the top. Uh, you know, a number of people at the top, whether that's, you know, whether that's at the top of some of these boards who, uh, you know, are, are in the India, Australia uh, and, and England, who actually, I think, at least uh, at least verbally and, and the way that England's gone about their test cricket in the last year, there's certainly uh, some positive signs there that nobody wants this, this format of the game to just die and, and disappear. You know, I don't think, I think if you asked all the players, they don't want to not be playing test cricket in five years time and just be playing T20, T20 leagues all around the world. I don't think that's what 
the players want in it. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I really don't think that's what the fans want. I, I kind of wonder who's watching all these T20 leagues. I, you know, I, I, I love some of them. I, I love them when there's nothing else on. Like I love the IPL when that window is on. It's really, really fascinating to see the best players in the world mixed up and going against, uh, you know, going against like their uh, players in their own country from their own country and, you know, matching up and all the different tactics. But I, I, I just don't find it, you know, I don't find it as interesting uh, as a five-day test in, in in its ideal form. So, yeah, I just don't know how this gets fixed, but it, it really does need to, something does need to happen. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We, you and I can't solve it here on this on this episode of the Top Order podcast. But rest, rest assured, listeners, I'm going to put uh, my meager pinball machine of a brain uh, to work over the course of this New Zealand summer and, and try and come up with some solutions potentially to air on an episode of the Top Order podcast in 2024 because it does need the global cricket community to get their heads together to come up with an answer. I think uh, none of us, as, as I used to say at my old job, or they used to say at my old job, none of us are, are smarter than all of us. And I think if the global cricket community really wanted to put their minds to it, we could come up with a solution. But unfortunately, money's talking at the moment and it's talking far louder than uh, some of the voices that are being raised in both the fans and the players, as you said, Stu, even the national bodies of, of you know lots of nations supporting or wanting there to be a future of Test cricket. But when push comes to shove, all of those national bodies need to be able to fund those cricket teams going on tours. They need to be able to fund cricket at a first-class level in their countries. And for a nation like South Africa, the only way that they can do that, as far as I understand it, is to have their best players playing in their domestic tournament. And I'm sure lots of countries uh, put themselves in the same position, uh, T20 cricket being the financial vehicle that drives uh, sporting or cricket success in that country. So stay tuned, listeners, as we as we throw more thoughts at the blackboard or the dartboard of, of international cricket scheduling to come up with an answer that might work uh, for the future of Test Cricket. Uh, Stu, unless you have anything else, I think we, it's a good opportunity to wrap up the podcast there. Uh, 51 minutes in an impromptu episode of the Top Order podcast. Uh, more than enough, I think, for listeners and viewers. And thank you for sticking with us uh, if you have got all the way through uh, this missive from Stu and I. Uh, no, nothing nothing further for me. It's put a lot of pressure on New Zealand, I would say. <laughs> That's, New Zealand now has to win this series. Otherwise, we're going to have a lot of, of egg on our face. And uh, yeah, so... It's uh, it's fascinating to see that series come up, you know, for for so many reasons. And obviously, as we talked about in our previous episode, uh, England and India, you know, if you love Test cricket like we have just talked about for the last fifty minutes, that series has has so much to offer. So yeah, it's it's very very exciting to think that those couple of series are, are on the horizon, followed by an Australia New Zealand series over here in New Zealand. So exciting exciting little few months for for Test cricket. Yeah, the, the Southern Hemisphere summer proves uh, or is promising to be uh, full of exciting cricket. There's lots of test cricket being played this year, to be fair. Lots and lots of games coming up on the calendar, as you say. India, England coming up, Australia, New Zealand here in New Zealand uh, following the South Africa series. So there's lots of test cricket coming up. West Indies in Australia as well for a couple of tests uh, coming up as well. So look, plenty of cricket coming up in January and February. We'll be covering it all here on the Top Order podcast, as well as lots of domestic cricket news as well. Uh, I'm sure Stu will be keeping us abreast of all things happening in New Zealand domestic cricket, as he does a fantastic job of that each and every week. So stay tuned to the Top Order podcast over your summer here in the Southern Hemisphere, or if you're enjoying some uh, winter cricket coverage in the Northern Hemisphere, thanks for joining us here on the Top Order podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Take care of yourselves and each other.